But in many respects, this is what the gospel is, right? That Jesus says, right? It's not, it's not those who are well I'm coming for. I'm coming, I'm coming for those who are sick. I'm coming to the last place on earth where you can imagine beauty to arise. And that's where I'm going to build my studio. That was Dr. Kurt Thompson, and this is the Things Above Podcast. Today's guest for a Things Above conversation is Dr. Kurt Thompson, MD. Kurt is a psychiatrist in private practice and a prolific author. He's board certified by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. His clinical focus has been in the emerging field of interpersonal neurobiology, IPNB. We'll talk about that. Kurt believes that the findings in IPNB reflect important tenets of the Christian faith, and those enable us to reflect on, understand, and experience that same faith in fresh, trustworthy ways. Kurt is married to his wife, Phyllis, and they are the parents of two kids. Kurt and Phyllis reside in Arlington, Virginia. He's the author of some wonderful books that I highly recommend, namely The Anatomy of the Soul, Soul of Shame, and his latest book, The Soul of Desire, which I look forward to talking with Kurt about today. So Kurt, welcome to the Things Above podcast. Oh, Jim, so good to be with you. Thanks so much. So good. Well, I'm excited. We we uh, we have worked together in the past. You mm-hmm. taught for us here at Friends and uh, got to know each other a bit, had a wonderful lunch that I remember well. Oh you my gosh, I still great I, insights. I see us. I see us that was sitting fun. in the restaurant. I was. <laughs> it was fun. It was yeah. a great, great time. Yeah. My first visit to Kansas ever. That's right. I think I knew that at the time. Yes. Well, we'll we'll get you back for sure. So here, I want to start with this, and you don't know this is coming, but <laughs> it's a quote. It's a quote from the Soul of Shame, one of my favorite books of yours. But in the Soul of Shame, you write this, and I'm going to connect why I'm starting with this. You write, "What do I pay attention to?" Question mark. Paul says that what we pay attention to doubles back and governs us. Hence, our attention is deeply associated with either life or death. Wow, that's a big statement. But the reason I ask, Kurt, is because this podcast is called Things Above. It's built on Colossians 3, where Paul says, set your minds on things above. So, you know, this, is, this, this podcast is about uh, thinking about our thinking. What do we pay mm. attention to? Mm. Could you unpack that quote just a little bit about how what we pay attention to governs us? Well, uh, we like to talk, I say we, when, when we, those of us who... Um, talk about this question of the mind and its life. We like to talk about how the the attentional mechanism for human beings is like the ignition key. Uh, it turns everything on. Everything that we do is a function, ultimately, of how and to what we are directing our attention. And uh, our attention is a feature that we have in common with other lower animals. I mean, like, you know, your dog pays attention to you when it's looking at you expectantly. And we can pay attention to things on purpose or we can pay attention to things kind of uh, non-consciously, uh, maybe not so much on purpose, but we can pay attention consciously, we pay attention non-consciously. I can be speaking with you while, while you're a passenger in, in the car that I'm driving. I'm driving the car, but you and I are having a conversation. I'm paying attention to our conversation, but there is a part of my mind that is also paying attention the highway and so we we hope so anyway yeah we do we do we do (laughs) hope so yes that's yeah 
Yeah, I mean, that may be why, like, my wife doesn't want me driving and talking at the same time. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think uh, here, especially with with Paul, you know, fix your mind on things above this this notion or where later he would say, I, I believe it's Philippians about like, whatever there's whatever's good and right and beautiful, like, fiction, like, think on these things, pay attention to these things. And we like to say also that we become what we pay attention to. Mm. And yeah. if I am attuning to my uh, story in which somebody hurt my feelings and I'm uh, paying attention to the story that I'm telling, which is that uh, that person is a dirty, rotten scoundrel, uh, it, it shifts and shapes uh, so much of who I am. I I, my heart rate goes up, my blood pressure goes up, I furrow my brow, I'm doing all kinds of things because I'm paying attention to this person in these kinds of ways, as opposed to being curious, for instance, paying attention to this person who has hurt my feelings, but I want to be curious, for instance, about what happened to them such that they did what they did and hurt me in the mm-hmm. way that they did. And so attention is really important because everything follows after it. And uh, we would do well to then pay attention to what we are paying attention to, uh, because what then soon follows after is my intention. My friend Dan Siegel would like to say that we then intend, we intend, we move toward those things to which we are directing our attention. And part of the challenge, and this is true for me, Jim, is that uh, there's a lot of my attentional activity in the course of any given day uh, that is on autopilot. I'm not paying attention and it wanders mm-hmm. off the trail and goes down rabbit holes. And I kind of wake up, you know, one moment and be like, how did I get here? Because I really wasn't paying attention to where my attention was going and taking me. And so for, you know, for us to talk about anything about our mind, we first talk about this because it's the beginning point where uh, everything gets started. I totally agree, you know, and and Greg Boyd, who I've I've had on this podcast, he he talked about the importance of mind discipleship, and I, I say that a lot of times at the intro of this podcast, and I hadn't thought of that until Greg said it, but and, and he even he even then followed that up by saying it's actually the most important kind of discipleship is mind discipleship, and we we often don't think about that, um, but yeah, the, I I just love that that quote from from your book and. Mm. That just thinking about our thinking, as Dallas Willard would say, we got to think about our thinking, and uh, that's really why we do this podcast. And there's so many connections with with that and what you're you're doing in your new book. Mm. So many things, Kurt. I love about the book. I've mm. I've I've been working on beauty. I've been studying Balthazar for five years. Mm. I've written some on beauty. I've written on the soul. I've got a new book on the soul that's coming out this May. Shameless plug right there. But uh, so so I you know you and I I mean so I'm and when I'm reading your book and I read it. Uh, an early draft for an endorsement. And I, the whole time I'm just going, yes, yes, yes. There's so many things and I can't wait to talk about them. Let's start with, this is a question I ask every author on the podcast, the same, the same question, which is, and when we're talking again about the soul of desire, your latest book, my question is, is so why did you write this book? Wow. Well, <laughs> I know it's an easy question, but a hard question, isn't it's, it? Yeah. It's easy. You know, it's it's funny. The, uh, the well, and I think you 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 <laughs> you have no idea. Um, I wrote the book because I had a contract I had to fulfill. I wrote the book because I uh, 
you know, I, I will say this, Jim, the first two books that I wrote came, I, I think, somewhat organically out of the work I was doing with patients. Uh, and the first one kind of it was an attempt to really kind of take the material of neuroscience and Christian spiritual formation and put it in a form that my patients could have access to. And while I was writing that book, the uh, elements of shame kind of started to emerge. And that second book kind of came naturally out of this, out of that book. The, the, this third book uh, took more effort, first of all, even at kind of um, coming to a, you know, to a place of being an idea, let alone, a, you know, coming to a place of being real. Um, but I, I would say that one of the, I, I, had a, I had an experience back about four years ago now coming up on five years ago uh, with Mako Fujimura, and we were in Pasadena together. There was a group of us for a period of about a week, and he was doing work along the lines of, you know, he was painting, and we were talking about, you know, with this group of folks, uh, talking about neuroscience and talking about talking about philosophy and a number of other things. And what really struck me in our time together was the notion of how the work that we were doing with patients was really much more artistic than it was medical in some respects, mm-hmm. much more about the creation of beauty in the very place of trauma, looking for beauty in the very places where we would least expect to see it. And this really uh, kind of, kind of captivated me around this notion of how even the way, you know, one of the things that we say that trauma does is the trauma doesn't just shatter my story. Trauma shatters my capacity to perceive the very nature of what has happened to my story. Mm. If I, you know, cut my hand uh, I, uh, am still able to perceive that my hand is cut. I can get a bandaid or I can go to the hospital and get sutures. I, I'm able to perceive pretty accurately what has actually happened to my wound. But if I bruise my brain, if I have a concussion, my capacity even to perceive what has happened to me in and of itself is affected. And our traumas, our shame experiences that we perpetuate on our own uh, not only make it uh, you know painful to live in the world but it also kind of messes with my capacity to understand what the thing is that's actually happened to me mm. and and so i don't i don't i don't then imagine that my life is beauty that is being you know is waiting to emerge by the great artist uh, I, I don't. I don't imagine this. I, I. I can't imagine my broken marriage. I can't imagine my addiction. I can't imagine my. You know the abuse that I experienced as a kid. I. I, I don't. I don't have. A, I don't have a, a way to imagine that that is is a space is the very space where beauty is about to emerge, but in many respects, like, like this is what the gospel is, right? That Jesus says, right? It's not. It's not those who are well I'm coming for. Mm-hmm. I'm coming coming for those who are sick. I'm coming to the last place on earth where you can imagine beauty to arise. And that's where I'm going to build my studio. Mm. And uh, 
you know, I, 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 I found myself even just trying to find words and metaphor and so forth, let alone trying to connect the neuroscience to this was, um, had its, had its own particular challenges, uh, because I think, uh, I think evil knows that once we catch wind of beauty, once we catch a glimpse of it, evil knows that its days are numbered. Mm. And, uh, so it, it doesn't want us thinking about this. It doesn't want us imagining this. It certainly doesn't want anybody having a podcast. It doesn't want you writing your next book about this, mm. the good and beautiful God. It doesn't want language like that to seep into the consciousness of people. Mm. Um, so like all the more reason why your next book that's coming is going to be so important. Mm. Thank you. Well, you know, uh, man, that, that is really, really great stuff. Because what I'm hearing you saying is that, like, I also, as a writer, I know that there are reasons we start to write a book and then things happen. But it sounds like on the journey that you are on, some really profound stuff, certainly with, with Mako. For our listeners who don't know, Makoto Fujimura is, a, is an amazing artist, an incredible painter, and uh, has done incredible work in the integration of art and faith. His books are phenomenal. But it sounds like in your time with Mako, you you began to see that connection between the inner longing of the soul for beauty mm-hmm. and what you're doing in interpersonal neurobiology. Mm-hmm. And that, that's what I'm so grateful for is that integration. So let me just stop for a second and say this, because what I think is so wonderful about you and the work you're doing is when if you stop and think about someone at your level of credibility in terms of you know, your education, your, your credentials, what you are. I mean, you're at the highest level in terms of uh, psychiatric work, neurobiological work and all that sort of thing. And yet you're a believer. (laughs) So, uh, you know, I mean, sometimes I think a lot of us think, well, these really incredibly high level folks in medicine and science and that level, you know, they, 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 faith isn't there. What's, what's wonderful about is, is you're saying, no, I, you view everything from at least the books that I've read, just three of your books. But uh, I mean, you view your life, your world, everything from what I like to call the magnificent story, this big story, the big God story and the Trinity and life with the Trinity. That's real for you. And even evil, which you just referenced. Um, I mean, that's another thing. I think I remember when M. Scott Peck wrote People to the Lie and we're like, wait, a psychiatrist mm-hmm. is talking about lying or evil? And mm-hmm. like, is, is that a real thing? I thought mm-hmm. the world was secular. Right. Say just a little bit about that side of your work, because I think a lot of our listeners are thinking, wow, this guy is has incredible credentials in this field. And you're also a person of faith. So I don't could, could you say a little bit about that? Well, you know, I think um, I, I don't I It'd be, it'd be, at some point, I, I need to hear what your, you know, kind of early faith story is, by early in your life. And I need to hear that sometime, Jim. I, I you know, mine, uh, I, I grew up in this, in, which was such, like, I couldn't believe I'm coming to Friends University when I came to visit you all back in, you know, a few years ago. Because I, I grew up as an evangelical Quaker. I grew up in the Friends tradition. Oh, wow. And, uh you know, uh, God found me early and often. Uh, I mean, how, how could he not? Like I'm in church like this three times a week and all those things. Uh, I, I also, you know, temperamentally, I, I was probably, uh, somewhat, somewhat shy, somewhat, uh, you know, I could get, I could get ruminative. I could get, 
reflective in ways that weren't always the best ways uh, to be thinking about things. I could get, you know, my head wrapped around the axle about any, any number of different things. And I, early on, even after I had this rather profound encounter with Jesus when I was 13, not long after that, I entered into a phase of what became a kind of like an ongoing 20 year kind of existential in and out crisis uh, of faith. And so this notion of who are we and what are we doing here? And, you know, what, what do you, what do you do? Uh, even, even things as, as small as like you, you look outside and you see the oak tree that is growing and that is probably somewhere between 40 and 80 years old. It's in your neighbor's yard. And you're thinking, how does that thing get here? Now, of course, I, I, I'm aware that it, you know, sometimes I, I, I kind of step back and look at myself thinking about these things and I'm thinking like, gosh, this, this might be a little much. I mean, uh, it, you're thinking all these things, but I, I, I think, and, and, and I think to, to be honest, there are times when, uh, this felt sense of longing to be this deeply connected and longing to make sense of, you know, human relationships and why do we do what we do and all those kinds of things. Um, was was has has historically always been running juxtaposed to this text, this story. Uh, as we're as we are recording this, we're recording in the Christmas season of 2021, and this this story of of of, of God coming mm. and coming subtly, coming fragilely, and you know it's. Uh, it's, it's striking that we don't have another story on the planet where God comes and is fragile, where mm-hmm. God comes uh, and is dependent upon others. No Eastern religious cult in their right mind would have God being weak it's beyond God. It's a it's beyond human's imagination to consider that. And so this notion of practicing psychiatry of wading into questions of how do people do what they do and why they do what they do and all the things that we contend with, whether it's, you know, major mental illness and bipolar and schizophrenia and all these kinds of things, or it's depression and trauma and anxiety and alcoholism and all, and, and, and now all the number of things that we as human beings contend with, uh, you know, all of that. I mean, I, I love your, your book on the magnificence, this magnificent story. Like it, it, it really, you're, that, that book really kind of uh, invites us to, I mean, like we, we have to acknowledge that at some level, every one of us believes that we're living in some story. Even if right. I don't think that I'm, that I do that, like I, I live, I, everybody, everybody lives as if they're in the middle of a story, like we, because we are storytellers, we're telling stories all the time. And the question is, in what story do I believe I'm living? And if we take the biblical narrative seriously, then I have to contend with the notion that there are these things in neuroscience that we're learning about using a scientific method, but that's all sitting inside the biblical narrative, this grand story that is messy and deep and mysterious and way outside my control and way above my pay grade to understand. And yet God has somehow seen fit to offer us ways of understanding the mechanics 
of how we operate, what our mind is and how it operates and things like attention and emotion and memory and the body's role in the mind, all those kinds of things as a way for us to be better able to love him with all of my mind, my heart, my soul, my strength, and so forth, to love my neighbor as I love myself and to do justice and mercy in the world. And so I think, I think for me, um, you know, it, it has not always been uh, an easy uh, relationship between uh, what it means to follow Jesus. Cause I, I tell people like, you know, look, I'm like, I'm a professional sinner. Like I'm really good at it. And, <laughs> and, and, and like, I'm, and so following Jesus is not easy for me to do. And so uh, content and, 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 but, but the story, the, the, the Jesus story would say, well, of course not. Because like in that story, uh, I don't just have my own brokenness to contend with, but, I, but there is this adversary who does not want me to follow Jesus and is doing things to actively keep me from following, to keep us from following Jesus. And so, you know, including all of those things, I think, however, actually helps me make so much more sense of the neuroscience uh, as it presents itself in the research that we that we look at and the way that we apply it uh, in everyday life. It is fascinating, isn't it? And and I, I look at some of these advances in neuroscience and then all this work in positive psychology. They're trying to figure out what makes people happy, what makes people well in their soul, if you will. Um, and, and suddenly they're like, oh, actually having gratitude is like really great. Having mm-hmm. significant relationships is really great. I mean, mm-hmm. every one of these ends up actually affirming this big story. And yeah. That's that's what I love in reading your work is you see these parallels and it's not like you're trying to fit a round peg in a square hole and make faith and and interpersonal neurobiology work. They just do. They just mm-hmm. absolutely fit mm-hmm. perfectly. Let me ask a question about that. So IPNB, I'm so glad there's an acronym because interpersonal <laughs> neurobiology is, Dude. is long. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, tell me about it's, it. It's nice that, yeah. But that's, of course, uh, uh, your area, real area of expertise. And I want to talk about that for a minute because a lot of people, when they think about psychology or even therapy, it's such a caricature. It's like Sigmund Freud saying, sit down on the couch and tell me about your mother. Yeah. But, <laughs> what, but, but really, interpersonal neurobiology it takes into account this idea that sort of on Martin Buber's I thou thing that I only know who I am. If there's a, if there's a thou, there's somebody else, Mm -hmm. some other who helps me know who I am. Mm -hmm. So what you're doing interpersonal is saying that it's relational and your brain works that way and Mm -hmm. your body works this way. But for those of us who are new to interpersonal neurobiology, IPNB, what, what is it about? Tell, I should stop talking. You're the expert. Well, you know, as to, to answer that question, the first thing I will, I, I just want to give a little, just a, 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 one quick piece of data to, as, as I reflect on that. And that is this, if you, if, if one were to like you injure your shoulder and then you got to go, you know, get physical therapy for your shoulder to help get your shoulder back on track. If you go to see the physical therapist and they, you know, and as they are want to do, they send you home with these different exercises um, that require like 30 hours a day of work to get your shoulder back on track. Yeah. And, and they're all painful, right? PT, right? Physical <laughs> therapy or just pain and torture. It's just another, <laughs> it's just another phrase for pain and torture. <laughs> and if they send you home and they say like, Kurt, I want you to do this exercise three times a day and then come back and see me next week. 
if they also tell me, look, when if, if they get a mannequin out or they get a skeleton out and they show me, look, Kurt, when you do this exercise, here's the muscle group that you're exercising. Here's how that muscle group raises and lowers your shoulder. Here's what it does. And here's what's happened to your muscle group. And when you do this exercise, this is the way, this is the muscle group that you're strengthening. And this is why we're doing this muscle group this week. And we're going to do this much, the next muscle group the next week and so forth. When I understand the mechanics of what I'm doing, I am far more likely to go home and do the exercise. Hmm. Now okay. it doesn't guarantee yeah. it, but to have an awareness of the mechanics of what is happening helps complete in my mind. It helps me make visual sense of the activity. And so when I can make sense of things in this way, it adds a layer of confidence and agency for me to enter into the work that I want to be about. And so I, I say that part of, you know, when we talk about like, well, what, what, okay. So there's all this, you know, this stuff that we learn about the mind and neuroscience and so forth. Like, like what, like, why, why is it of any benefit to know? And I would say, well, it's kind of like going to the physical therapist and them showing you, this is how your shoulder works. And this is how the exercise is going to affect that. People are far more likely then to enter into things that we can do toward healing, toward regeneration, toward renewal when we know these things. So to, to your question, there are a lot of disciplines in the world, a lot of scientific disciplines uh, that have an interest, have a stake in understanding what the nature of the mind is, whether it's uh, bench neuroscience, you're looking at, you know, how, how, how neurons work, right? Brain cells. If you're a psychotherapist, if you're a child a psychiatrist, if you are a family therapist, uh, a whole range of disciplines that are interested in what the mind is and how it works. Interpersonal neurobiology or IPNB is a discipline that brings together those different disciplines and asks the question, what are some things about these disciplines that they share in common where we can have some consensus around A, what the mind is, and then B, what does a mind look like when it's flourishing? You know, it's, it's really interesting in, in medical school and in psychiatric residency training, I did not have one lecture, let alone a course on what the mind actually is which, you know, I don't know if that's the thing I want to admit. It'd be kind of like, you know, your orthopedic <laughs> surgeon, like really having no idea what a bone is, really not being able to describe it. That would be, that'd be weird. And for a psychiatrist not to actually have a working definition of what the mind is, you know, do you want to trust your care to, to that person? We were taught about psychopathology. Like, it's kind of like, we know, we, we kind of know when there's a problem. Like when people are depressed when people are addicted to a substance like we know there's a problem there but how do we know what the mind actually is that is having the problem and then even more to the point how do we know when that mind is flourishing and so interpersonal neurobiology really attempts to get at those two questions what is the mind and b the second question what does the mind look like when it's flourishing yeah absolutely well what, let me jump in though so what I'm what I'm hearing you say is that this is a way to understand the way, kind of like the physical therapist. This is your muscle group in your shoulder, your rotator cuff. All these things are doing this stuff. IPNB is coming in and saying we we actually have a, a sense now of what actually does work, right? And so, um, 
that's that's why uh, I love what you're what you're doing here because you're saying this is the way this is supposed to function. And as I mentioned earlier, um, I was studying this this class at Yale called uh, I think it's called the Science of Well Being. The students call it the Happiness Course, and it's I think mm-hmm. it's the most right. popular course at Yale. Right. Right. And so yeah. I thought, well, I better look into this. So I looked into it. And and not to to demean it at all, but it's real basic. It's like maybe you should have some time of quiet. Maybe you should pr- count your blessings. Maybe you should do an act of kindness. Are you going? And it turns out when people do those things, they feel better. Like they mm-hmm. they rank higher on the happiness scale when they do things that that I would say are a part of spirit, Christian spiritual formation in in, in general. Um, but you know, let me let me ask this because I love this quote. There's so many quotes I want to quote from the book. But on page seven, you write this: "You desire to be known in the deepest recesses of your story, so that you will be liberated to become an outpost of new creation, of beauty and goodness, even as you create that same beauty and goodness yourself, as you practice for the kingdom of God that is here and is surely coming." Well, that is a quote we could unpack for the rest of the day because there's so much you say there. But that that desire to be known. That's a connection with the interpersonal part, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I can I can segue back and hit the volley back to you now. Well, I, well, I, I think you know I, I think you know just fundamentally, like you know, um, just you know, we moderns. For for example, I, I when I think about my mind, uh, and and then if I'm going to love God and love other people with all my mind, with all my strength, with all my heart, and so forth, like when I think of that, when Kurt thinks, you know, well, this is this is what you're supposed to do, I have a certain way that I imagine and think about, well, what we're talking about. I'm, I'm talking about my mind. My, and I typically would think, oh, this is my thinking brain, the part of me that thinks about things. And I'm, it's my thinking brain. It would never occur to me, Jim, that my mind is actually, uh, e- even right now as we're recording this, that my mind is actually intersecting with yours and that, it, that my mind is, doesn't just belong to me. And mm-hmm. as you said earlier, this notion that in order for me to become my fullest self, I have to have the experience of being seen by another human being. I have to be, we like to say, seen, soothed, safe, secure. So to be known, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 8, this notion that there are those who believe they know who do not know as they ought, but the person who loves God is known by God. I'm able to love someone because I do so in response to having been seen by that person. Mm-hmm. And especially the parts of me that I hate the most. You see the parts of me that I'm working really hard not to let anybody see. But if I allow you to see them, literally, it changes the neural circuitry. It affects the brain cell impulses that I am firing on my own in my own isolated way to protect those parts of me that I don't want anybody to see. When I am seen by you, especially when I acknowledge that part of my story with all the things that I sense and image and feel and think, when I allow myself to be seen by you in that way, I have an overwhelming sense of well-being, especially if you see me with empathy and with compassion, and also with the intention that I'm reading on your face and in your hearing and your voice, this intention that when we see each other and you hear this part of my story, you long 
for us to go somewhere else. You want me not to remain in that space, but you want me to go somewhere else. That whole notion of being known in that moment gives me the felt sense of being loved in that space. And in that very moment, I now have the opportunity to no longer have to continue to burn energy to protect that space from being seen. Mm. And that energy literally is now made available to the Holy Spirit to do the new work of creation. And that energy was heretofore not available to God because it was bound up in me trying to protect myself from you Mm. and the rest of the world. In hiding. That's right. Yeah. Just like Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. But this, th- this is an example, for instance, of how if I just think that my mind is only a thing that is housed in my skull, in my brain, and that it really amounts to, you know, the things that I think, and especially, and even if we want to talk about emotion, it's really ultimately like what I think about my emotion, not that my emotion itself is all that important. I, it's just a thing I have to regulate and keep track of and make sure it doesn't, you know, create any problems for me, as opposed to it being like the fuel in the tank that's driving everything. If I'm aware of of more of these things, it means that I become more able to put language to all of these things that I sense and image and feel and think and want to do with my body. And when I put language to those things in the presence of an empathic listener or empathic listening community in particular, it creates the opportunity for me to be renewed and literally for me to begin to create new neural network firing patterns that were never possible before, before I could hear my story afresh in your voice. I could see my story afresh in your eyes because we don't ever make sense of ourselves by ourselves fully because it's not good for man to be alone. We've known that from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Wow, that is so. That is so good. And of course, you see that not just as a therapist, you know, who's who's you are that empathic voice and and place and space, but also within the confessional communities that you write about, have a whole chapter about that. So let me throw this this uh, story out and let you. I'm going to let you riff on it because I think this this might help. So I had a student several years ago. He graduated. He went into ministry. He went out to a small town in Kansas. There were four other pastors of different denominations, um, and they would get together and and have time together to pray and so forth. So uh, the student told me that the first time he went there, uh, they had this time where they would sort of have a confession and share a little bit about to support each other. And as they went around the room, they would say things like, well, you know, sometimes I get a little angry at my congregation for not doing this. And sometimes I get a little frustrated when my wife doesn't. And all these really sort of socially acceptable things. Well, it got to this former student of mine. He just says, gosh, I don't mean, I don't, I'm a little embarrassed to say this, but I really, I struggle with lust. And he sort of shared his thing. Well, I think you can guess where I'm going with the story. Uh, <laughs> these other four guys all went, oh, we're going to like be honest mm. and stuff mm. and self-disclose. Mm. So they shared their stories and they became this close group. And one of the guys even said, you know, we've been meeting for years and we've never felt this close to each other. Mm. And they had this incredible bond mm-hmm. and like, this was the best meeting we ever had. Mm-hmm. And so when I, when I hear what you were saying about that energy to hide and 
that we spend and that this and that quote that I said of yours earlier on page seven, your desire to be known in the deepest recesses of your story. That's kind of what happened, right? Is that I mean, obviously, it's just a little simple illustration, but yeah, it would it it would make sense. And I I think here's here's the beauty then of what happens in this in in these kinds of moments, Jim, is that, you know, um, if if we if, if we believe that we were made to make things. That I wasn't just made to walk on the earth and feel good about myself. That I was made pay hey, to make things, but that I was made to make things with others, mm. and that I'm and and those others are truly other, right? It could be as different as male and female, which is about as different as you get when it comes to the differences. But it could be me and my African American counterparts. It could be me and my, you know, all kinds of ways in which you're differentiated. And we're also going to make things in states of vulnerability. I need you. I need what you can bring to the table. I need you to protect me. You need me to protect you. We need to, we need this because like we are vulnerable creatures, this notion that we're differentiated and we are linked in our vulnerability. When we bring that to the table, great creativity emerges. So I'm not just called to kind mm. of walk around on the earth. I'm called to make things, but I have to make things most, I, I make things most durably and most beautifully in states of vulnerability while being differentiated from and yet linked to others at the same time. And it's in this state that these notions of connection take place, like your former student describes. And so Yes, not only do they feel connected, but it probably also leads to all of them being more comfortable and confident to go about their work in doing harder and harder and more and more creative things. Because quite literally, the more they practice that kind of confession, the more permanently, quite literally, the more permanently each of them takes up residence in the mind of each of the others. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. One of the most common unsolicited comments that we get in the confessional communities that we have the honor of walking with is the number of times that one of the participants in the group, one of our patients will say, uh, I had the hardest conversation I've ever had yesterday with my boss and every single one of you were in the room with me. Hmm. I can tell you exactly where you were standing and where you were seated. <laughs> like a cloud of witnesses. <laughs> That's exactly what it yeah. is. But we, you know, we, we talk about these things often quite, uh, you know, in, in abstract terms. Yeah. Yeah. This, this, this cloud of witnesses. Yeah. This, this, yeah, yeah. I got my, I'm going to take you with me. And we kind of like, yeah, thank you. Yeah, That's great. I'm going to just get, and we all kind of like agree, but like, okay, but I don't really know what that means other than just like, it's a nice thing to imagine. But this kind of work, as it turns out, is a recapitulation of what a preschooler does when she goes off to preschool. Now, the preschooler's mm. mind uh, is not thinking this. She's, she's three. She's not thinking, oh, my gosh, like, I feel so comfortable and confident going off to preschool today for my first day because I'm going to take mom and dad with me in my mind. She's not thinking this at all. But that is exactly what she's doing. She's taking embedded images and sensations and feelings and thoughts such as they are of her parents that create comfort and confidence with her that enable her to go then to a new space 
and interact. And hopefully she interacts with a preschool teacher that only strengthens that she arrives now yet to another place where someone gives her the experience of being seen, soothed, safe, and then secure. And so while she's there, she tries new things. She learns new things because her body literally is collecting witnesses to her life. The cloud grows. Mm. And so it doesn't just grow in order to help me feel good about myself. It grows in order to strengthen my capacity to then go on and create, even in places where the creative act will feel risky, where I may make mistakes, where I may get my nose bloodied and my knees skinned, because I will always have a place where I can return in order to be seen, soothed, and safe, where that secure attachment and that Inter, interpersonal neurobiological connections are taking place. Hmm. What evil wanted to do in Genesis 3 is to disrupt that whole project and does so through trauma and shame by literally disrupting the connection between the neural networks within a person's mind and the, ne- and the connections between people as a result. And so you look at the curses at the end of Genesis 3 And we would say, gosh, it's no wonder that the mind, given its sophistication, is going to have such downstream, long-term negative side effects. Because this is the way the brain was made to function in the first place. It was made to function. When we create something, when when you create a piece of music that's beautiful, when you write a book like yours that is beautiful, you know that like, As soon as the book is done, the book starts to take on a life of its own that is beyond you. Hmm. And people are going to be influenced by your book in in ways that you didn't even think that they they could be. Because God is going to take that icon of beauty, that new artifact, and just like any beautiful painting that that we come upon, people are going to interact with it and be changed because this is how the Holy Spirit works. And evil finds this to be anathema and will do everything it can to keep it from happening. And so when trauma happens, the downstream side effects will be equally difficult because this is God's intention for us to create beauty in the first place and have it have long lasting effects. Wow. 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 I'm going to have to listen to this podcast again, just to catch all that you said there. That was so good. Wow, Kurt. Well, we have covered some amazing ground today. I mean, this is, I I feel like I understand interpersonal neurobiology in a new way, these longings, the need, what we're designed for. I would love to have you back for a part two, because I want to talk more about the soul. I want to talk about desire. I want to talk about beauty. I I want to hear you talk about them, not me. And maybe even a little bit about seeing, soothed, safe, and secure, because those attachment issues are huge. So if you're welcome, willing, if you're welcome, so if you're willing (laughs) to come back, you're welcome. You are welcome. Are you willing? Uh, We'll come back for a part two to pick up on those things. Well, man, it would, are uh, you in? I I am in, it would be my pleasure. And uh, I'm again, I'm uh, Jim, always such a gift to me to have the chance to uh, be in the same room together with you. So thank you so much for your, that's great. All right. We'll keep this going, brother. All right. Right on. I hope you enjoyed this Things Above conversation with Dr. Kurt Thompson. I know I did. He, wow, he has so much to say, so much to learn from him. I hope you join me next week for episode 130. 
Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith, and you can learn more about this podcast. And if you'd like to donate to the Things Above podcast, you can. You can do so on our website, apprenticeinstitute.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, and you can also subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope, as always, is that one day if you're asked, what's on your mind? Your answer will be, things above.